Welcome to the Fearless Fostering Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Burst, LCSW, a foster and adoptive and bio mama and a therapist in private practice. I'm here to help foster mamas feel seen, heard, and supported on their journey. From quick, actionable steps to make your foster care journey easier to interviews with foster and adoptive mamas, the Fearless Fostering Podcast delivers education and encouragement weekly. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Fearless Fostering Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Burst, LCSW, and I'm so excited to be joined internationally today by Eva Muhlenberg. She is a former foster youth, and she lives in Western Australia, and she is going to share her story with us. So thank you so much, Eva, for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Kathleen. It's a privilege to join you today. Thank you so much. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of sharing a little bit as much as you would like of your story with us of how you came to be in foster care and what that experience was like for you. Yeah, sure. So I was born in India and I was born in a predominantly female household. So I grew up with my aunties and grandparents or grandma and my mom uh, because my dad had passed away when I was um, a toddler. And I didn't know this, though. I didn't know that my dad had passed away because I thought that he was working in Singapore, which is what I was told. And I don't know why my family never told me that he was he'd passed away. But yeah, I think they were in their own way trying to protect me from something. But in the end, it ended up actually being not that helpful to kind of find out, you know, by yourself that your dad was actually not alive. And I found out when I could when I started to learn to read and I went to a grave that I thought was just my granddad's and I remember like reading my dad's name and his birth and death date and that's basically how I figured out that my dad was yeah not alive and I think that was probably some of my earliest memories growing up which started off you know a cycle of just real loneliness and betrayal and abuse Um, so in India with the honor and shame culture you have a lot of unbelief when it comes to the woman's or the girl female child's word so I remember when I was about five years old or maybe even younger because this is my earliest memories my next door neighbor who was maybe about 50 years old would sexually abuse me and I was groomed very much with just the kind of very textbook grooming, you know, with just chocolates and lollies and words and that kind of stuff. And so I didn't know, you know, what to really do about it. And I didn't even know it was wrong because it was, I was so young. And so that continued on, you know, repetitively for a few, I would say for a couple of years at least. And I remember, you know, that was like my first exposure, I guess, to sexual abuse. And that continued on with a few more Uh, people and you know statistically I think once a child has been sexually abused um, it's so much more likely for them to for it to happen to them again and um, that's unfortunately what was true in my story which it just kept going and in throughout my childhood there was seven men and one older girl who had uh, abused me in this way and yeah my mom uh, remarried a man when I was about 12 and this continued the cycle and the abuse just became so much more intense and worse. Um, And it wasn't until I was in Australia, it actually all started to come out into the open and things started being 
done about it. So when I was in India, I had told a few people, three adults, what was happening in kind of childish language, I think, because I didn't even know what what to say about it and or how much of it would be my fault. Because as you know, with grooming, you know, you're often made to believe that it's actually you're the one who will be in trouble if you do disclose. So yeah, I told the adults and nothing really happened. One of the adults told my abuser what I had told them. So the abuse actually became worse. So that just cemented the idea that no one would actually do anything, you know, um, that it will just continue to be this way. And when I came to Australia, I started having health lessons. I don't know how it happens in the US, but yeah, we have health lessons and you, you know, there's some protective behaviors that's been coming in more and more explicitly now. But when I was in school, it was still, you know, like teachers would teach, but I don't know if there was like a particular curriculum for that. But I started, you know, really understanding what was happening to me in I guess with a bit more clarity of oh you know and there was like this righteous anger inside me that just really started to kind of become a bigger flame and I realized what was happening to me was injustice and it needed to stop and I didn't actually deserve to be treated that way and there was also some very real fears of pregnancy and what would happen if I became pregnant and because there was no protection being used and so I remember like this one time the abuse would happen like in a big way every uh, once a week so every Wednesday and I remember this was a Tuesday no Wednesday night and I was the abuse had just happened and I was just uh, praying and I'd grew up in a Christian family in India everyone assumes I'm Hindi for some reason because I'm from India but we were from if we were a Christian family and my abuser went to church and he, had, he was very charismatic so you know it was I think I'm not isolated in the story either with people who you know abusers being just really charming mm-hmm. and so I didn't really have too much of a relationship, I guess, with God. And so, but I remember this one time I was sitting at the end of my bed and the abuse had happened and I was just praying. Like, I just remember praying to God and saying, you need to either end the abuse or you need to end my life because I can't keep going on like this. And I was just praying so, so hard. And I just finished reading this book by Dave Pelza, I think how you, I don't know it, it's called the child called it and oh, yeah. um yeah. yeah 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 and that's the book that actually uh told me about foster care so I didn't even know foster care had existed and so I thought oh like in India foster care doesn't exist so um and so I didn't really know about it in Australia as a kid and so when I read it and Dave is you know his experiences in the US so I was like oh I wonder if Australia has the same thing you know it also being a western country so then I remember just praying and praying because I knew there was some ways that that it could be better and so while I was praying and I can't explain this in any other way there was just this sense of calm and when I say a sense of calm it's like this peace that surpassed all of my understanding because in my perspective, I'd just been abused. I'm sitting at the bed that I've just been abused in, but I had this peace and I just knew that it would be okay. And I just knew that I was going to be removed out of this. And the very next day, a boy at school asked me out and accidentally it all kind of came out and I told him what was happening and him 
having grown up in this culture of like guilt and innocence like if you're guilty you need to be punished kind of kind of thing and he just said you need to tell the chaplain and if you are not going to say uh, tell the chaplain at recess I'm going to tell her at lunch and so I was like okay well I've already told the adults nothing happened so I'll just tell her you know what's what's she going to do kind of thing so I went and told her and immediately she asked if she can pray with me and I said yes and so she prayed with me and then she just had to call uh, Child Protective Services and I was taken into foster care like that day. So the day after my prayer and feeling that peace. And that day I was at the uh, police station for about three or four hours, um, just disclosing like everything in detail. And then I stayed at my friend's house for about a month before I came into foster care. Yeah. Mm. And how old were you, Eva, when all this was happening, when you came into foster care in Australia? Yeah, so my 14th, no, 15th birthday happened in the month that I stayed in my friend's house. Um, and I remember being on an air mattress and just as the clock turned 12, I remember, you know, wishing myself a happy birthday and rem- thinking that this was the worst birthday ever, even though, you know, I'd been taken out of the abuse, like the uncertainty of the environment that I was in was just really nerve-wracking and you know almost like in a different way traumatic so and you know I didn't know then there was no confirmation of where I would be because as you can you know you would have you know as a foster parent that it's hard to find a place for teenage teenagers Mm -hmm. you know and just like in Perth as well there's a huge shortage of foster carers so especially now since COVID Mm -hmm. but yeah, so it was just I was there for a month before they found me a placement. And um, when I entered into this new placement, I was just so surprised with the cultural differences and the languages because I was still speaking Tamil in my house and English was my second language. I mean, it still is. Yeah, so I was it was just a complete culture shock and a complete difference in just the rules and routines and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that was uh change yes oh my goodness that is so much to bear as Mm. a young teenage woman I mean like you said it wasn't just like one thing changed it was everything changed and although Mm. some things seem to have changed for the better and that you were out of the abuse Mm. there was so much else that you were still having to grapple with and be honestly like you said traumatized by and just being completely removed from that situation and everything that was familiar to you so what did you do like how did you draw on that situation and become I mean who you are today because I know I mean now you're a teacher and you're doing amazing things in the world how did you get to where you are today I honestly have to credit uh, the community around me in my new school so when I entered into foster care of course the rebellion kind of came in a little bit as well I wouldn't say it was too bad the worst I did was like wagging school Who hasn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I basically was caught by my foster foster mom. And yeah, so I wasn't very good at doing the wrong thing. I was, yeah, I got caught very easily. I got caught the first time that I worked. <laughs> and um, so she just said, uh, that's it. We're moving schools. You're not, you know, and it was just a huge, like you're going to go to this small Christian private school in the hills so there was nowhere to wag. If I needed to wag, I had to just go and wag with the kangaroos. Um, 
<laughs> literally there was just kangaroos in the bushes it was there was nothing around my school um, my new school so I went to the school and as much as I was so devastated to move from the only thing that was then familiar for me which was my school and my friends and many of my friends who knew that I was now in care I didn't have to then disclose this weird thing about me kind of you know at that stage that's it's an embarrassing thing to really say that you're in foster care and for people to assume things about your life so then in this new school I the teachers there was just something different about the teachers you know they just really took an interest in who I was as a person and I remember like the cooking teacher would take me to the cooking room and she would give me food and stuff to take home or she would just they just really took care of me as a person and met me where I was at Mm -hmm. and I think after my big prayer the night of my last night of my abuse, I kind of forgot about God, didn't really, you know, I had nothing against him, but I didn't really have a relationship per se. So then when I came to this Christian school, that kind of started being kindled within me. And in my school, they do like a mission service trip at the end of every year for year 11 and 12 or grade 11. You guys call that called grades, right? We call it years. Yeah. 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 So um, in year 11 and 12, you get to go to the Philippines and um, you get to like take part in just serving in uh, like a ministry center, like in an orphanage, that kind of stuff. So I went to the Philippines and I remember that I had like this massive re-encounter with God. And I just, I remember singing, um, I think it was like a, a really old old ish song like here I am to worship Uh and this is my desire (laughs) and I remember singing it and there was just this same feeling of the Holy Spirit coming to give me this peace just Mm -hmm. came again and I remembered oh my goodness like everything that the world had meant for evil can be turned to good in the name of Jesus you know Mm -hmm. that was my point of really recommitting and reconnecting with God and I remember when I was there that God just promised me that I would have a child from the Philippines and I do have a child from the Philippines (laughs) now. (laughs) And um, yeah, so it's just, there was just so many promises and promises of healing and stuff like that, that just come about and it all, I have to attribute it. I mean, yes, of course to God, but the people who actually said yes to him, you know, as a response to him. And then that then transformed my life. Yeah. So then we came back to Perth and um, we basically, I got invited by my best friend to her church and she would pick me up. By this time I was actually in a group home as my foster placement had broken down. And so, yeah, she would pick me up every Sunday from my group home and I had like no cooking skills. And this was like a semi-independent group home. So there was not an adult really living with you. And I was about six, 17 when I came in to the home. And I would just be literally like eating cans of tuna or uh, frozen pizzas and ice cream because no adult to monitor me if I'm eating ice cream for breakfast. So <laughs> yay. <laughs> so, um, you know, doing that and she would take me and these families at church, it almost, I know that they didn't have a roster, but it was almost like they had an invisible roster as to who would take me after church every Sunday. And Mm -hmm. I would be invited to join their table and just be part of their family and have meals with them. And then I would be dropped back home. And it wasn't 
that they did something massive. It wasn't that they now gave me a bedroom and asked me to be, you know, living with them. Mm -hmm. But they did these small inconsistent things where I got to witness what family was supposed to be like and how God intended families to be like and even when they had problems and my friend would sometimes complain about her parents and I would not understand and I'd have like no empathy (laughs) read the room (laughs) yeah there was just these revelations of what life could be like and then that's where I also met my now husband is just has been this love of God for me you know Mm -hmm. if I can see the life of Jesus personified apart from the Bible. It's honestly just my husband's love, which has been so consistent and so compassionate in understanding just, and his commitment to being trauma-informed. Yeah, he definitely has been a huge healing for me as well. But yeah, it's just a bunch of people saying yes to God and in small but consistent ways. Yeah. I love I love the way that you shared that because I think that there's so many people around the world, but I know in the United States who are like, I want to do something, but like, will it be enough? Or I don't have time to do too much, or I'm not really sure. And like, for, for you to be able to say, it wasn't like everyone had to be like, Mm. come live with us, Eva, come in our home (laughs) and like stay with us forever. It was like, yes, a few people along the way did do that, but it was meaningful and impactful the way that other people were like, come have Sunday dinner with our family, Mm. come be part of our family for like a couple of hours each week so that we yeah. can just like pour into you and love you. And I think like, you know, that shouldn't be lost on people that there are mm. other things and other ways to serve. And like you said, just say yes, like yeah. just say yes in the yeah. way that you can and the way that yeah. Absolutely. And I think also not having an expectation of what this child should behave like Mm -hmm. because of their past experiences. And, you know, like some of the most damaging things for me was people assuming that I would have uh, hugely sexualized behaviors because of my experience. And I think Mm -hmm. it's good to be aware of, you know, like, because obviously with being a foster carer comes like the allegations and a risk of that. Mm -hmm. But you know, for like, for me, I was never allowed to be in a car with my foster dad by myself. I was never allowed to touch him or anything like that. So the only touch, only male touch that I had known for all of my childhood was that the men would touch me in inappropriate ways that would make me feel unsafe. And so that narrative was never changed because people, there was just this over cautiousness about this. And the first male touch that I felt safe in and I, I had to work so hard to get to that point and I wouldn't even say I'm still there yet is that like my husband you know other than and now there are so many other male figures in my life even just people my own age who I'm so comfortable with but that had to take so much work because of the unlearning that I had to do that male touch equaled unsafe yeah so I think it just also the preconceived ideas I think have to be challenged. Mm -hmm. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with teenagers and foster care, I think that like, you know, people have this notion and I mean, it Mm -hmm. doesn't, this is the hard thing. It's like, there are, you know, there is evidence to say that like kids who have experienced more trauma may have Mm -hmm. more trauma behaviors in the future, but that does Mm -hmm. not, there's no equal sign. There's no equation. And so like you said, instead of assuming inform educate Mm. yourself, Mm. learn, 
get a clear picture of what's going on and what you can handle in your home, but don't assume yeah. that every child with like, you know, sexual abuse in their past, is going to be a sexual yeah. abuser of other kids or yeah. whatever, you know, even mm-hmm. like violent or anything like that. It's like, it, that's not true. And I think in our humanness, we want to like have this, yeah. like, well, if I can just avoid this, this, and this, then it will be mm-hmm. safe and cool in my yeah. house. But like, there is no equation this side of heaven. Yeah. There is like this world is just where we live and it's like yeah. home for now. And we just have to, you know, understand, especially as foster carers that there there's no, like, there's no safe yeah. <laughs> or as, yeah. as parents or as humans in general, that that's not what we're called to anyway. So just yeah. being educated is important and being trauma informed is important, but you know, at some point we have to realize that we don't yeah. know it all. We're not going to know it all. And yeah. can we take a leap of faith and, and step into this? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Foster Mama. I just want to let you know that Fearless Fostering is open for enrollment right now through July 30th. This deeply connected coaching program will teach you how to be resilient and prevent the stress and overwhelm of fostering from interfering with your health, happiness, and relationships. You'll become less reactive to stress as we focus on expanding your coping skills. Plus, you'll be doing so alongside an amazing community of foster mom friends that can truly empathize with your experience. If you're at all interested in this, I encourage you to apply right now on fearlessfostering.com. Yeah, I think uh, like the illusion of control that we sometimes have is just it needs to be completely shattered sometimes for Mm -hmm. us to really face the reality of who God is calling us to serve. And I, since becoming a foster, like it's been three years since I've been a foster parent with my husband and um, (laughs) any illusion of control I had was shattered (laughs) since becoming a foster carer. That's for sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's just, God just continues to, I think, refine and refine and refine and it's painful, but the alternative to that is to be stagnant in a, in dirty, murky waters. And I wouldn't want that either. <laughs> exactly. I heard a quote once that was like, you know, growing and changing is painful, but so is staying the same. Mm, it's like, which absolutely. one do you choose? You know, which one yeah. do you want? But I love the story of your husband and you now as foster carers, like yeah. that is so beautiful. <laughs> How did you guys get there? How did you <laughs> arrive to this conclusion of like, I mean, I feel like you would be completely justified in being like, well, that was then this is now like, <laughs> I want to go forward in like the most conventional way possible. And now you're like, yeah, oh, no, we're not doing that. So how did you guys arrive at that conclusion to be foster parents? <laughs> so like my first answer to that is, it was always a, when am I going to become a foster carer rather than if. Mm-hmm. So I've always wanted, I think, since I knew, like read the book, um, The Child Called It. And then I went through like this phase of reading every story of like abuse ever. And I don't know if it was the healthiest thing, but, you know, it just op- opened up my world to this possibility of caring for children who would come from places that were similar, not the same, but similar to mine. And so my husband, before he became my husband, knew that this was going to be the case if he married me. So he was on board from day one. 
but I think it was also subconsciously. I remember people would say stuff like, oh, um, you'd marry the first person you you see who will show interest in you or you'd you'd be the first to have a child or, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I just really wanted to not have that narrative true for me. Mm. Uh, not that that was a bad thing at all, because I did in the end marry very young. I was 19 when I got married. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> but I knew it was such a divine appointment, too. However, like I just knew that God had a path for me and it was I was supposed to say yes to him, Mm -hmm. you know, and it yeah, it just happened to be like maybe I think after four or five years after we got married was when we started the foster care journey and we didn't we've never actually tried to have biological kids everyone asks me that all the time oh yeah and <laughs> yeah they're like you're 27 when are you going to have your kids oh my gosh I'm like okay I have friends who are still not married so I'm fine yes <laughs> yeah so um but we've we've served we've had eight kids come through our home you know through respite and emergency care and stuff like that but yeah that's basically how we came into foster care and it hasn't all been roses um, experience wise but it has definitely been a godly encounter you know I've just had so many things that God has uh, healed in me since foster care I think and also just shown me like a different perspective of who he is you know Mm -hmm. if I can care about a child who I didn't bring into this world this much then how much does he care about me whom he knitted in my mother's womb you know it's just yeah it's Um, been a crazy time (laughs) I feel like just hearing you say that I literally have tears in my eyes because (laughs) I think that a narrative that so many people believe honestly like even you know Christian or not they they will think like well if this bad thing happens then like how can God be real or how can he love me and just to hear your strong faith through the Mm -hmm. absolute atrocities that you've lived through and the trauma. I mean, where, how can you reconcile that? I mean, I feel like there's so many people and I appreciate it, but there's so many people who would just be like, how can, how can injustice like that exist in the world and a God be good? Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, I think that's a question that comes my way all the time. (laughs) And I don't feel equipped to answer it, but I, this is my go-to for that is I look at the story of Joseph and I look at the story of Job and I look at so many women in the Bible, like Rahab, who've just had this, or Hagar. I think Hagar is now my favorite person in the Bible. The atrocities and the injustice that were committed against her. And she was the one, she's, I think, I don't know if I'm correct or wrong in saying this, but I think she's the only one who got to give God a name Mm -hmm. and called God the one who sees her, you know? And it's just, I I told you, yeah. It's just um, with God, I think he's got this ability where he allows these things to happen and his heart is hurting when these things happen and he is crying with me and he was right there with me and he was on the side of the victim and not the perpetrator, Mm -hmm. but I think in the world I see, like we see, okay, I categorize victims in this box and I categorize perpetrators in this box. But for him, he sees the perpetrator when they were a child. And when things, you know, like when I think of my abusers and I had to go through a journey of forgiveness and I continue to go through that too, is, okay, my abusers, they were all children at one point and I don't know what happened to them to to have done that to me. And 
you know, to God, I just think, okay, am I willing to see my abuser in heaven? And am I willing to reconcile? And I think the answer is yes. You know, at the, in the end of the day, they are his children and is, does his forgiveness reach out to them too? And the answer is yes. And if it doesn't, then I serve a small God, you know, and it's, it's, it's to know that God's grace extends to the worst of, I guess, quote unquote criminals or perpetrators is just soothing and healing to me because I know that he is compassionate and he is who he says he is yeah I think I just keep looking at Job in the Bible sorry not Job uh Joseph who he doesn't just forgive his perpetrators but he goes on this journey where he brings wholeness Mm -hmm. to their lives by you know providing for them and I just think wow like that is someone who is followed the heart of God you know who's like stayed in the will of God and you know I I don't know you know and I know the will of God is so big and we get to make choices and all of that kind of stuff yes of course but to just you know look at him like look at people like that for as an example written centuries and centuries and centuries ago but still say stay so true and so relevant to today it's just that's the living word of God right Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah Yeah, but God has never proven wrong um, in who he says he is to me. I think there's definitely been moments of doubt or moments of questioning, you know, why he would let, you know, I've had have those questions too. every time a new child has come into my home, you know, the temptation is there to think how dare they in terms of the biological or whoever they were abused by. And then I'm reminded again that I'm a sinner just the same, you know, and as much as I was a victim, there were many instances where I was a perpetrator in somebody's story and God's forgiveness reached out to me then too. So good. Oh my gosh. This is like, I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours. (laughs) Thank you for sharing. This is so beautiful. And you're just so eloquent in how you share your story and how you point everything back to God. It's just so beautiful. Um, so I want people to be able to follow along with you online. Where yeah. are you sharing things? I love some of your reels that you do. I just like <laughs> your humor, like you're just, everything is just so awesome to watch. I feel like I'm so glad we connected. Of course. Yes. I'm so glad. I love your reels too. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I love the Foster community on Instagram, which is where you can find me sharing most of my stuff. Yeah. So it's just my name, Eva Muhlenberg. And um, yeah, I would love for people to join me there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Definitely give her a follow. Oh my gosh, you're, it's like <laughs> you have the perfect mix of like hilarious and like heartwarming <laughs> and just like emotional stirring stuff. It's so good. So I really appreciate oh, everything. Thank you, Kathleen. The ways that you're using your voice is so important and we're just so thankful. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and I'm so inspired every time I see you and you know, so many other wonderful wise women on Instagram and it's just um yeah really really encouraging for me to see people just advocating for children who are vulnerable and at risk and it's definitely encouraging yes same thank here. you thank you <laughs>